You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, if you turn on uh, Five Live on Friday night, Friday night, David, and you hear next Sunday's announcements being read, you'll know there's been a hitch with BBC Radio and that David, who's become a master of the fill-in, has been called into service by the BBC. Um, I should say, I'm pretty sure David may correct me, that that Church of Scotland minister whose preaching caused a riot was not, for those of you who will be at Amelia's tomorrow night discussing John Knox's history of the Reformation, was not John Knox. Uh, John Knox's preaching caused a riot in our neighboring city of Perth, but only because of what he called the rascal multitude. And since most of you, I guess, are not part of any rascal multitude, I'm hoping that the message tonight will not cause a riot. So let me ask you to turn back in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, the first seven verses. We're not coming to these verses out of the blue, as it were. I've not been possessed of a desire to preach on husbands and wives, but because we're working our way through 1 Peter, we're seeing how Peter addresses Christians in a pre-Christian world in a way that's relevant to a post-Christian society. And at this stage in his letter, he's dealing with how the Christian responds to and negotiates some of the challenges and difficulties that arise in the basic institutions of human society. And in the Roman world, those basic institutions were, first of all, civil government. Secondly, for everyone in Roman society, the institution of slavery. About a quarter to a third of the people in the Roman world were slaves. The rest of them were slave owners or people who had slaves in their houses. And of course, the third institution, which this passage talks about, is the institution of marriage. And it's fairly clear from the way in which Peter addresses uh, this whole issue that while he's speaking about gospel principles for marriage, as in the other institutions, how do we, how do we relate to a government that's hostile to the gospel? How do we relate to masters or employers who are hostile to the gospel? He is applying general principles, certainly in the opening verses, uh, to women in the church whose husbands may be hostile to the gospel. But in each instance, what Peter is doing is bringing gospel principles to bear on life situations. And the undercurrent that he's teaching us is this. There is no society, there is no institution, and now he's going so far as to say there is no marriage relationship 
in which it is impossible for you, Christians in Turkey, in which it's impossible for you to live the Christian life. And we are living at a time when many Christians fear that the Western world is going to be an impossible place to live the Christian life. And often one meets Christians who, when they see what's happening in society, are overwhelmed both with a sense of hopelessness on the one hand and and in in a sense of the sheer impossibility of being a Christian in a world like what our world is becoming. And Peter is bringing this great message to us, thrilling message in its own way, that the gospel works everywhere. But we need to learn how it works. And we need to learn, he is saying to these Christian friends, we need to learn and understand how the gospel works in the marriage relationship. And that's perhaps especially true if we're in a marriage relationship that proves to be difficult. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, we can remove it from St. Peter's. Imagine that you're a member of an Anglican church uh, somewhere in the south of England, and you've gathered with others for the weekly Bible study in the rectory or the vicarage, and uh, the vicar is leading the Bible study, and uh, they're mixed group of people, some married couples, some singles, one or two elderly people, and the, the vicar is trying to do his best in the Bible study. And what he discovers is that in the Bible study group, there are some people, when you read a passage, immediately grasp and understand its exposition. But there are other people because you've never been in a Bible study like this. That's why I've moved down south to illustrate that there are other people who, who don't seem to bother with the exposition, and they just give you their reaction. And they've just read this passage, and the vicar says, well, what's the first thing that strikes you about uh, this passage? And uh, the first person to speak is Mrs. Evangelist. And she says, what's this about winning your husband without a word? Of course we've got to speak words. Where did Peter get this from? And then, of course, there's Mr. Rigorous, who's turned to his wife even when the passage was being read, and since he's slightly deaf, he's shouted at her so everyone here, I told you you're not supposed to wear makeup. (laughs) And then there's Miss Feminist. She says, well, I would never call anyone master. But our rector is uh, blessed because Miss Marple belongs to his congregation, and she can always be relied on. Uh, Miss Marple was a, a, is a single lady, obviously, Miss Marple. Well, nowadays you can never tell. This is M-I-S-S. This is genuinely Miss Marple. And at one time she was a, she was a missionary in the Far East and always be relied on to say something. But well, what do you think about this, Miss Marple? And Miss Marple says, well, you know, the first thing that strikes me about this is that Simon Peter addresses six verses to us women and to wives and only one to husbands. And I suspect that Mrs. Simon Peter probably read this letter. 
And I'm sure Simon Peter was saying something that that Mrs. Simon Peter would also have approved of. And I think, can't be certain, can't be dogmatic about it, but I think, although I've never been married myself, I have seen this, marriage isn't for wimps. Marriage isn't easy. Two selfish people need to be fitted together. And I think Peter is very sensitive to the fact. I think he knew he may not have been the easiest man in the world to live with. And I think he's very sensitive to what God means for married people to have. Look, for example, he he understands that that Mrs. Simon Peter is, is the weaker vessel. She couldn't haul out of the Sea of Galilee 350 plus fish. And he's saying something about how how women are are physically weaker than men. And he's saying, you need to understand that. You need to live with your wife with understanding. And we women need understanding, don't we? Now, I've never been married. Actually, I've had a few proposals. But I've never been married. But if I had been married, I would want to be married to a man who understood me. That'd be more important than money, more important than houses or cars, that that he understood me. And here's another thing. Uh, Some of you young women here have had to give up your careers in order to look after the children. And and that's been a sacrifice for you. And uh, I've never had to do that, but I understand that, that none of these women had careers. And I also understand this, and you just look around our congregation and, and see the number of women who are here without their husbands. Actually, I think that's much more difficult than it is for the men who are here without their wives. So, some of our women, we, we don't know what goes on in the home, but their husbands are not sympathetic to Christ. And, and we don't know if they're very unsympathetic to, to their... I, I won't mention any names here, but you, you notice some of them aren't here every Sunday. And when you see some of them, some of them look quite distraught. And you wonder what... what I wonder anyway. I know I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a little nosy at times, but I do sometimes wonder to myself... I wonder if something happened this morning. I wonder if you said something. You and your church, you and that vicar, you and those stupid old people, you and your religion, God, for women, that can be very sore. And I think, says our Miss Marple, that the Apostle Peter understood that, and therefore what he's saying here is actually a rather marvelous expression of how to apply the gospel to a difficult marriage. And through that, says Miss Marlowe, I've never experienced it myself. You don't need to experience everything to be able to understand what the Bible says about it. Otherwise, none of us would ever preach on the subject of death, would we? And none, our vicar would never have preached on being born or being born again. I think what we need to do, I'm sorry I've gone on so long about this. I didn't mean to, but I've really been on a roll. 
I think we should try, first of all, to listen to what Peter says and think this. This is as much the Word of God as John 3.16. This is as much the Word of God as Psalm 23. And perhaps some of us, I'm sorry, Vicar, I didn't really mean to go on about this, but I, I, I hope you don't mind. Some of us want to pick the pieces of the Bible that we really like and leave the pieces of the Bible that we find harder to put into practice. And if we do that, we end up picking the Jesus we would like and leaving aside the Jesus about whom the New Testament speaks to us. So why does Peter give six verses to the wives and one verse to the husband? For this very simple reason. Think about the previous passage. He doesn't give any verses to the masters. Maybe there were no Christian masters. But why should he focus on the Christian slaves because it was far more difficult in Peter's view to be a Christian slave than to be a Christian master. And why focus on the wives? Because this is actually a very remarkable individual, this Simon Peter. This is the apostle who gives us the impression he understands that it actually can be far more difficult to be a wife than to be a husband. And in this society, I mean the first century society, that was all the more true because of the position of women in that society. So what's he saying? Let's look for a few minutes at the counsel he gives to wives. And this is relevant to all of us. We may be wives. We may once have been wives. We may want to be wives. We may not want to be wives, but we know people who are wives. We all know wives. Uh, half our congregation probably are wives. You see, the reason this is in Scripture is that in part so that those of us who are not wives can learn what wives need from God's perspective and not just from our very horizontal perspective. And you notice that what he says here fits into the whole pattern of what he's been teaching us. That the hallmark of the Christian believer in every relationship is his or her willingness to be submissive because he or she is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You don't like the government? Well, says Peter, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You don't like being a slave? Nevertheless, he says, for the sake of the gospel, be subject to your masters with all respect. And uh, whether or not marriage is easy, he is saying the key, the key to real fruitfulness as a wife is your willingness to be submissive to your husband. Now, why does Peter say that? He says that because he, he understands the, the teaching of the book of Genesis, that God created 
men and women absolutely equal in his sight. And he makes that obvious, doesn't he? In verse 7, he says, we, we men and women in marriage are co-heirs together of the grace of life. There's no question about whether men and women are equal. The uniqueness of the Bible's teaching, the absolute uniqueness of the Bible's teaching, and wherever there's diversion from the Bible's teaching, or the equality of men and women is not based on the Bible's teaching, you, you will immediately get all kinds of dysfunction in our political parties, in our ginger groups who are so insistent on women being equal with men. It is soon not long before you understand that this is not actually an issue of equality. This is an issue of power. That's what is wanted, power. Not an equality in which one desires the best for the other and the other desires the best in return, but power and influence over the other. And Peter is saying the gospel makes you different because the gospel brings you back to this relationship for which Adam and Eve were created in which they were both equal in status before God, in full, equal personhood, both the image of God, and yet within the relationship, the man was created to be the head of the woman. Just as Paul says, in the redemptive relationship, the woman was made to be the glory of the man. And you see, that's a very, uh, that's a reality that can only take place when within the equality of men and women, there is a recognition that men and women have distinctive roles within the marriage relationship. That the husband is intended to be the leader, the head, and to use the language Peter uses here, the master. And the woman was intended Remember how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 11? And if you don't know what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, you'll never understand the New Testament's teaching about marriage or about women that the woman was created to be the glory of the man. What does that mean? Uh, someone walks into the, the church on Sunday morning, a very beautiful young woman in her early thirties, beautifully dressed, uh, 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 beautiful. I mean, she, she kind of, she's, her face is almost symmetric, which is actually quite rare in Scotland. You know, there are no kind of squinty bits. Not, not, only, not only is she beautiful, but th th there's, a, there's, a, there's a lovely humility about her. Uh, and, and so you, you don't feel with her that, that, she's, that she knows she's superior, although she obviously is. And she says, my husband's just, just parked the car. I'll be here in a minute. And then in, in comes the husband of this, this beautiful woman uh, with all these graces. And, and he, his, his shirt's covered in, in tomato ketchup. <laughs> and he hasn't shaved and he's got lice in his head. 
Now, what do you think? He's been eating too much salmon, is what David Robertson is thinking. No, you think. And just tell me honestly, why should there be anything wrong about that? I mean, what's, what's wrong about that? Why shouldn't a man with tomato ketchup in his shirt be married to a beautiful woman? Now, why shouldn't this slob be married to this woman? And why do we laugh at it? Tell me what's wrong with it. Well, what's wrong with it is this. It's Paul's principle that the woman in marriage is the glory of the man, that what you thought when she said, my husband will be here in a minute, you were looking for, hey, you were looking for something else, weren't you? I mean, you expected the three-piece suit, you know, and the white shirt and the And you thought that the the guy who had won the heart and hand of this woman, he must be really special. Now, why did you think that? Doesn't a man with tomato ketchup on his shirt, shouldn't he have a beautiful wife? What's wrong with the picture? What's wrong with the picture is this, that if she is his glory, then he should be really something to have won the heart of this woman who is the glory. And that's the, fra- that's the Bible's framework of reference for us thinking about marriage. And the reason why Peter's teaching that the, the wife submits to her husband, nothing to do with her inferiority, she's his glory. But it's got everything to do with the fact that what she wants to do is to be his glory. That's why she married him in the first place. Some of you know I used to teach in a theological seminary, very large theological seminary, seven, eight hundred students, and uh, we had all sorts and conditions. And uh, I remember a girl uh, who, was, uh, who was doing a theological degree walking across campus, and she told me she'd fall, she just, I knew this girl just longed to be married. And she said, I bumped into and mentioned one of my elderly colleagues, and uh, he, he said to me, do you know what my definition of marriage is, Seely? Oh, she was really eager to find out the definition of marriage of this really learned professor. He said, oh, yes, please tell me, professor. And he says this, woman sees man, woman likes man, woman decides she'll have man, woman decides she'll change man, woman fails. Now, why? Because she wanted to master him and change him. She didn't want to serve him. And you see, this is where our Bible study group person comes in and says, I'm not, go- I'm not prepared to serve any man. And what Peter is essentially saying is, then you don't understand what marriage is. You can never have a biblical marriage. And at the end of the day, you can never have a happy marriage because you are doing the very thing that Scripture teaches us not to do. You are insisting on your rights and your position and your power. You don't want to serve this man. You don't even respect this man, which you'll notice in our reading is a big thing in this passage. All you do is want your own way. 
And so Peter is, is bringing us away from that. That's not just a, a modern reality. That's something that has gone on down through the centuries to bring us back to the creation model. What does Eve think? God has made me to help this man. And that's a real word to, to those of you who are single uh, young women but want to be married. Please don't even think about marrying or being involved romantically with a man about whom you would never think, I want to serve him. I respect him enough to want to serve him. Now, you think that's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge. It's a very basic challenge of the Christian life, isn't it? It's how we function more remotely with one another in a Christian fellowship. It's because we, because Christ is our Lord and we have a respect for those who belong to Jesus Christ that we're willing to say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, but because we preach Jesus Christ as Lord, we also want to say to you, we are your servants for Jesus' sake. And you see, what makes this so relevant is it's only when this spirit is characteristic of us that the rest of what Peter says begins to make sense. For example, if you're married to a husband who doesn't obey the Scriptures, who doesn't trust in Christ, then you learn to win him without a word. Now, I don't think Peter is saying, you know, be a dumb blonde. That wouldn't make you stick out, would it? You know, being a dumb blonde uh, or being a dumb brunette. You know, Just be, never say anything to him. But I think he is saying, First of all, let the difference in your life speak. Remember 1 Peter 3.15, to which I've alluded a number of times. Peter assumes it's the non-Christian who will be provoked by the Christian's different lifestyle to ask the important questions. And uh, so he's saying, you know, don't go and buy Fruit Loops that have Bible texts around them and stick them in his plate in the morning. Live this life in which it becomes evident to him eventually, this woman loves me and she wants to serve me. This woman wants to be my glory and she wants the very best for me. Because, you know, it's true in every relationship as Christians we can almost destroy the possibility of what we sought to gain by the way in which we seek to gain it. Um, you know, perhaps some of us as zealous Christians have, have broken relationships because we have been so impatient with our witness that the first thing we have wanted to download onto non-Christians is how non-Christian they are. And in some instances, in a, in a work situation, a home situation, if you, are, if, you are, if you are that insensitive, it can take you months or years to repair the relationship. 
Some of you who are my age will understand this. The day I was converted, I was told to go home and tell my parents I'd become a Christian. I was an obedient, at least in this area, I was an obedient 14-year-old boy, and I think it was possibly the worst advice I could be given because my parents assumed we were all Christians. And so what they heard was, you didn't bring me up properly. It sounded to them like an insult. And so personally, except I can imagine unusual circumstances where I might say that, I would never say that to a teenager with non-Christian parents. What I would say would be this. There's a principle here. Live out the life and let the difference begin to permeate rather than destroy the relationship. I think it took two or three years for my my spiritual contact with my parents to be restored because I'd gone home as a 14-year-old boy and said something they found insulting because they, they didn't have the categories in which to understand what I was actually saying. And because well-meaning people said, you've got to be a witness. But you see, if I had been a woman going home to a man who didn't believe the gospel, Peter wouldn't have said that. Peter is saying something different here, isn't he? He's saying, let, your, let the transformation show. And this is, why, this is why he speaks about women's adorning not being external, the braiding of hair. I'll not even look up to see if there's any braided hair. The wearing of gold or the putting on of clothing. If you're using the new international version that's got fine clothing or something like that, just score out that word fine. It's actually, it's quite a a key here. What he says is, so don't put on clothing. We see, if that's what he says, he can't be meaning, dear women, look as dowdy as you can. You know, get the worst thing you can find in the Oxfam shop. Uh, He can't be saying that. He, He can't be saying Women, look as unattractive as you possibly can. What he's saying is uh, showiness that draws attention to yourself isn't going to do it. Because that's not the transformation the gospel creates. The transformation the gospel creates is in the heart. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very costly. Actually, he uses a term here from the financial markets. So he's saying, what's going to cut the mustard spiritually is not what is costly uh, in, um, well, I don't know any costly lady shops. What's, what's say? Uh, What's going to be costly in the stores? You know, the, the, the 80 pound t shirt, I'd say. You know, or the, the 150 pound haircut or whatever. He says, because that's external, that's where it will stay. Oh, 
If we could only get that into our heads, the external is only external. Now, those of you who get the Saturday whatever, with its, they've all got supplements these days that are hardly worth reading. Occasionally you'll get an interview with somebody, you know, some beautiful film star. You know, the thing that gobsmacks me about, those, about many of those interviews is the number of asterisks that there are in the articles. You know what an asterisk is? No, asterisk, asterisk, the gall. You know, those things they stick in where if it's in television, there's a sound. And here these, these people are presented to us by, by Hollywood, as it were, or, or by BBC, or whoever, and they are stunningly beautiful, but they have mouths like sewers. And presumably the men with whom they live must have ears like sewers. And it's ugly, and it's distorting. And what's it saying? Because, as Jesus taught us, it's what comes out of our mouth that reveals what's in our heart. Actually reveals an arrogant and angry and dismissive spirit, quite apart from the limitation of their use of the English language. Because it's always the same words you can tell. There are only three or four words you can tell the number of the asterisks. You know what words they're using. They give you the first letter. It's easier than the Times crossword. (laughs) And inwardly they're stinking. And if their insides were turned outside, you would run. You wouldn't be able to look. Because it's out of the mouth that the heart speaks. But you see, there's a, there's a mirage, there's an illusion. And they're power people, and they're often, uh, for some reason or another, they're often power women. And they're not beautiful at all. But our teenagers are brought up, and it's, like, it's, a, it's analogous to what David was, it was saying this morning. Teenagers are brought up to admire this, the beauty. Um, and it's ugly. It's just that we don't have eyes to see. We've been taken in. We've been deluded. They're not models. Why are they called models? To delude us that that's what we should be imitating. And Peter is saying the gospel does something incredibly countercultural to women. And creates in them this peaceable and quiet spirit. Now, I think I want to say this, that Peter says this in the context of what he's saying to women. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that a gentle and quiet spirit is essentially just a feminine grace. Why do I say that? Because that's the language that's used about our Lord Jesus. Peter is not saying, I have a fixed idea of what women should be, and it's not 21st century, so you fit into my fixed idea of what women should be. He has a clear idea of what Jesus was like, because he was this close to Jesus, close enough on many occasions to smell Jesus' breath, to look into his eyes, and this is what he saw in Jesus. And essentially, he's saying, this is because he's applying the gospel and biblical principles to 
to wives, some of whom are in difficult situations, he's essentially saying. I mean, it takes the whole Bible just to say this, doesn't it? Be like Jesus. Because it's only as you become like Jesus that your husband, or your wife for that matter, or your friends for that matter, are going to make any connection between Jesus and you. So long as I'm not like Jesus, why would anyone make a connection between my life, my words, my witness, and Jesus? You know, one of the blessings of uh, preaching the gospel in a church where there are real believers is that people who listen can make the connection. Oh, that's, that's what I've seen in her. Oh, that's what this means. It means like her or like him. Some of us in the room have preached the gospel where we've thought, I don't think there's a believer in the room. And we understand why it doesn't make any sense to people. And so here's an unbelieving husband and the gospel has made no sense and his wife has come to faith in Jesus Christ. How is it going to begin to penetrate this man's spiritual darkness. And uh, Peter is saying, dear ones, he's not going to be able to begin to understand the Word because he doesn't want the Word. But he will begin to be drawn to the Word when he sees the difference the Word has made to you. This is the message this morning, isn't it? That this is what the Word of God creates in us. And so he says, and we've got illustrations of this in the Old Testament Scriptures, and he uses the illustration of uh, Sarah calling Abraham Master or Lord in Genesis 18.12. It's almost as an aside, and I think Peter refers to it because he's saying, you know, this is the, this is the deep instinct. But what I, what I long for in my husband is somebody that it would be a blessing in a Christian sense to be mastered by. Remember that bit in Pride and Prejudice? Whether you've seen the movie or the BBC version or a black and white version or actually read the book, when Elizabeth Bennet, with all her prejudice against Mr. Darcy, ends up at Pemberley, this magnificent country estate that Mr. Darcy owns, and uh, his housekeeper is showing her around this fabulous pad. I mean, the man has 20,000 a year, which in Jane Austen's days, he's a multimillionaire. And uh, the housekeeper says, he is the best of masters. And Elizabeth Bennet goes away thinking about this in Pemberley. And something begins to happen in her, in the novel. And what begins to happen is this. It really would be something to have such a man as his housekeeper has described, mastering me. Why wouldn't you want to be mastered by someone who was like Jesus? If 
the thing you want most of all is to be mastered by Jesus. And you see, and this goes back to what Peter's been teaching all the way along, the the eyes of this wife, even if she's in a difficult marriage, the eyes of this wife are not in the first instance upon her husband, but in the first instance upon her ultimate master. And it's because of our relationship to that ultimate master that she wants to live in respect of her husband, wanting him to share in the blessings that that great master brings. And, uh, and so she's, she's like Sarah. Or she's like uh, Ruth saying to Boaz, shelter me under your wings. Now, why does she use that expression? Well, it becomes clear because Boaz says to her, aren't you the woman who came to shelter under the wings of the Almighty? You see this relationship, the the woman looking beyond the man to the, the great master, and then saying to herself, I will seek to be to my husband all that my master wants me to be to him, submissive and gentle and meek and loving and utterly devoted. And you see, that begins to speak volumes. One of the greatest illustrations of this is in the, in the mother of uh, the great Augustine, uh, Monica. Um, women came to Augustine's mother, he says, I think in book nine of the Confessions, to say, how do you manage this when your husband has been unfaithful to you? When your husband is almost uh, psychotic, sometimes he's kind and other times he flies into a rage. And I'm sure Augustine must have known what he was saying, but uh, he says his, his mother sat these women down, and uh, actually the first thing she said was, mind your tongue. <laughs> and then the second thing was, without reference to First Peter chapter 3, she describes what Peter says. And Augustine says how towards the end of his father Patrick's life, eventually this... Uh, unfaithful, sometimes tyrannical man was one for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's wives, or at least briefly that's wives. What does he have to say about husbands? Why only one verse? And in a sense, I think we can say, well, there's only, there's only one verse here, not just because Peter understands in this context may be much more difficult to be a wife than a husband, but because he's actually said almost everything he needs to say. It's almost as though all he needs to say now is this. Listen, pal, if you want this kind of woman as a wife, you had better be the kind of man that this woman would respect and want to have as her husband. And you see, it's back to the same principle again, isn't it? It's such a, such a basic thing. I've, I've personally so often said to courting youngsters or, or youngsters thinking about marriage, listen, 
assure me that you really respect him. Because if you don't respect him now, you have no guarantee you'll be able to respect him then. A marriage service isn't going to change it. And, and how, many, how many people rush foolishly, thoughtlessly into marriage without even thinking about that question? And sometimes even, I know, keep it hidden on their wedding day. I don't really respect this man. I don't really respect this woman. He's saying, you know, the man who, the man who has listened to these six verses is, uh, is going to understand something of the kind of man that God is calling him to be. And so he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does it mean to live in an understanding way? It means to think about her first. And there's the paradox, you see, that she, she wants to serve him. He wants to think about her first. And so, the submissiveness that's involved here is, is, is not a form of slavery, Actually, it's a relationship in which the husband may well say to his wife, what, would, what do you think, what would you like? Should say to his wife, well, let's do that. Just as a wise parent will sometimes say to the children, well, what, what do you think? What do you want? This is a dynamic relationship that the gospel is speaking to us about here. And Peter is saying this is the first thing that he, he wants to understand his wife's needs. He wants to, to know her better because he wants to love her more. And then he says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, people jump on him saying the weaker vessel. How dare he say I'm the weaker vessel? But look at what he's actually saying. He's saying what you want to do is to show honor to her because she is your glory and because your heirs together of the grace of life. And you see, if you don't do this, your prayers will be hindered. I suspect this is a big thing in marriage. I suspect wives pray for their husbands more than husbands pray for their wives. And if that's true, part of the reason may be that husbands, contrary to what Peter says, aren't seeking to understand their wives aren't showing honor to their wives, aren't thinking of their wives as, as co-heirs. And, and if, you, if you don't do these things, then your, your prayers for your wife, they'll dry up because you don't really care about her enough to pray about her. You're so self-obsessed that you don't see her needs. And this is what Peter again and again in these verses is wanting to emphasize to us. Well, there's so much more here, but this is, a, this is an echo of the divine recipe, and it is in a wonderful way a recipe for, for marriage that works. And especially for marriage that speaks about the gospel. So that in the coming days when our little ones grow up 
and are beginning to speak to their friends about Jesus Christ. And one of their one of the friends in the street says, well, what, what is this like? That even our children would be able to say, you see the way my dad treats my mum. You see the way my mum responds to my dad. It's a bit like that with us and Jesus. He is the best of husbands and the best of masters. We love to submit to him and to serve him. And he treats us with such honor and dignity. Our lives begin to work. And God's grace begins to permeate everything that we are and all that we do. So by God's grace, may we, may we learn to pray better as we read these words. May we learn, those of us who are married, to be the glory of our husband or a husband who in every sense merits the respect that his wife gives to him. And uh, if, we, if we're in the situation where we secretly really want to be married and have this powerful desire, it's a God-given thing, isn't it? Um, then let's be clear in what it is that we want to find um, and don't end up spiritually with a, with a man or a woman who's got uh, tomato ketchup all over his spiritual shirt. And for those of us who aren't married and we, and we, and we see people who are married, then, then we know it is not easy. It's bad enough living with one sinner, one sinner living with another sinner. I mean, youngsters would come to me and say, We've, we're so compatible. I, I sit down and I say, no, the first thing you need to know is you're, you're incompatible. By definition, you're incompatible. Only God is compatible. You're full of sin. And then I see, especially I see it in the young man, as he, as, he, as he looks in the eyes of his bride, and he's given me all kinds of hints, there was never a man who loved a woman as, as much as I love this woman. And I, I think to myself, I hope when you come back for the, the two-year checkup, you'll say to me, I was such an idiot. I hardly knew this woman, but I have so many more reasons to love her and honor her, and she really has become my glory. What a lovely thing it would be where we live if our, if our married life, even without a word, expressed the word so that people came to us, as Peter says, and, and said, how is it that you've made it work? And then the word comes in. And you say, oh, it's all in the book. It's all in the book. And all in the Savior. Well, this has been far too long. And you've been more patient than the preacher deserves. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the gift of marriage. It is such an extraordinary gift. None of us could have thought it up. 
none of us could have none of us could have even begun to imagine everything that you would do when you created Eve. All Adam could think of saying was at last. Because he, he, he must have known something's been missing and I don't know what it was. And you completed him. And those of us who are married, we, we can echo Adam's words that we have found a completeness we would never have had apart from the gift of the spouse you've given to us. And some of us have lived the whole of our lives without that and wanted to give what you have given to us in your service with the time, the, the, the freedoms that we've had. And also we wanted, to, we wanted to serve those that we know are married and we know it's, it's not easy because we don't find it being easy as single people and we know it can't be easy as, as married people. And some of us so much want to be married. Some of us don't know how to, to find our way to your will. And we pray that your word would be hidden in our hearts and that it would do us all much good. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.